As we prepare to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer us, for we are poor and needy. And gladden the souls of your servants, for to you, O Lord, do we lift up our souls. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. So give ear, O Lord, to our prayer and listen to our plea for grace. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth and unite our hearts to fear your name. Hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon chapter 3. Song of Solomon is the book right before Isaiah, so if you go to Isaiah, you've gone too far. Song of Solomon chapter 3, we've been considering a series through this book and we've come uh, to chapter 3 verse 6, and so what we want to do together this evening is read from chapter 3 verse 6 into chapter 4 verse 7 and consider what the Lord has to teach us in this section. So Song of Solomon chapter 3, beginning our reading at verse 6 and reading through verse 7 and let's pay, uh, verse 7 of chapter 4, and let's pay careful attention for this is God's own word. What is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of a merchant? Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are sixty mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords and expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon himself made, a, made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made its posts of silver, its back of gold, its seat of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. Your lips are like a scarlet thread, and your mouth is lovely. Your cheeks are like halves of a pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David, built in rows of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Thus far, the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Um, This is one of the the high points of this book, uh, the coming together of the bride and groom to be married. And it's pictured here as something of a royal wedding. Um, We've had a number of those in recent years. I don't know how interested you are in royal weddings. Probably some of you got up early to watch them. Um, If you're more of a curmudgeon like me, you probably don't care at all about it and didn't take the time uh, to pay attention to it. You decide you watch the highlights later. Um, 
But whether you pay attention and want to pay attention or whether you don't, it's a worldwide news event when a royal wedding happens. You can't get around it. You can't really miss it. You're going to see pictures of it. Um, it, It's an event. It's a news-making event. Um, And for the vast majority of people, when they get married, their weddings are not um, worldwide news events. Um, That's not to say they're not important, right? They're certainly important to the people getting married, to their family and to their friends who are rejoicing with them. Um, It's a wonderful thing to see two people get married. Um, As a pastor, you have a privilege of marrying people and getting a front row ticket to to some weddings. Um, And so it's a wonderful thing. And even if it wasn't a worldwide news event, um, even if they didn't shut down streets so you could ride in a carriage waving at people as you pass by, even if people didn't spend the night lining up to see you just to catch a glimpse of you on your wedding day, um, there's a sense in which every bride and groom in their own wedding is like a king or queen. Uh, everyone is there to see you. And certainly for you as participants, it's an important event in your life. And that's really what's being pictured to us here. It's, it's not as if the people have changed. We read about King Solomon and we might think, well, it is called the Song of Solomon. I guess he was bound to show up eventually, and now here he is. And we might make the mistake of thinking that the characters have changed, the characters in the psalm have become different. And again, this is poetry, and what, the, what is being done here is kind of saying every bride and groom is a king or queen on their wedding day. And this is being pictured, their wedding, the two people we've been reading about throughout this song, is being pictured to us now as a royal wedding. That momentous day that they've been looking forward to, the wonderful story of them coming together. And even though this person, the the beloved and, and, and her beloved and his beloved, the bride and groom in this passage, even though they are not themselves kings or queens, they are for this moment, in this moment of coming together. And that's how the poem is considering them, as if they are participating in a royal wedding. And the Holy Spirit does this so that we can see this marriage as the glorious event that marriages are in the sight of God and for the people that God has given it. Um, The Lord created this as an institution. Um, And every marriage that's conducted the way the Lord has called marriages to be conducted uh, is a remembrance of that first marriage. Uh, that man who was in the world and was not good because he was alone. And the Lord who made a helper suitable for him. Um, it's sort of as if God is the first father ever to give away a bride. And he gave Eve to Adam, formed out of one of his ribs. And it's that wonderful testimony of when Adam has reviewed all of the creation and not found a helper suitable for him, And when he sees the woman that God has made, what does he say? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Right? This at last is a helper suitable for me. Uh, this is the woman that God gave to him. And he spoke his blessing over marriages and over every marriage that's been conducted before his face according to his word since then. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God was teaching us from the very beginning that a marriage is a glorious event. It's two lives coming together to form one new life. 
Uh, it's a new creation that God is making. Uh, it is a glorious event. It's to be celebrated. And in that sense, that's why it's such a fitting picture of Christ and His church. Um, Paul draws that connection in Ephesians 5 when he talks about how marriage pictures for us Christ and His church because the two come together into one. The church becomes one life with her Lord. He came to bring us from death to life, to unite us to Himself, so that by uniting us to Him, His righteous life could become our life. And His death on the cross, we could die with Him. And His resurrection, we could be raised with Him. That we go from being one life on our own that was only a life of death to a life with our Lord that brings us to immortality and light. That's why it's such a fitting picture, a wedding. That's why it's such a fitting picture of a man and a woman coming together as one to picture what Christ has done for His church, uniting us with Himself. And Jesus did that for His church, what is described in Genesis. He left His Father's house and clung to His bride. And the two have become one flesh. It's a beautiful picture, and that's why marriages are things to be celebrated. Um, That's why they are glorious events, and that's why as the marriage is being contemplated here, it's presented to us as a glorious event. Um, And that's what's being pictured, and that's what we see in our passage. We see this fabulous ceremony as a royal wedding, and then we see the flawless bride with the husband singing a song to his wife, and that's how we want to think about this passage together, the fabulous ceremony and the flawless bride. Um, Just to come back to that question, I think, that comes in this text, what does King Solomon and his wife have to do with the husband and the wife we've been considering throughout? It's a picture of them. It's a picture of them as if it's a royal wedding that they're having. It's, It's the beauty of that being pictured here to us and taking us into the glory of all that goes along with that. Um, and it's right to see this picture signifying really all, gro- all grooms and brides on their wedding day. Um, I like how one commentator put it. He said, the references to King Solomon, like the crowns worn up to the present day by Jewish brides and grooms on their weddings, represent the images that the male and female possess in the eyes of one another. The female here appears perfumed with the finest of aromatics, guarded by a retinue of the strongest warriors and housed in the most gorgeous and exotic of chambers. She presents an altogether magnificent spectacle of one who might well have come from the ends of the earth to her lover. The male is the greatest of all kings of Israel, whose crown and glory are unsurpassed. Here the poetry pauses as it considers only the manner in which the lovers appear in the eyes of one another. They are pictured as king and queen. Is this hyperbole? Of course it is from the perspective of those who read this poetry. Of course it is not from the perspective of those of us who find here our own beloved and recall how beautiful or handsome they seem to us on our wedding day. For the lover, the object of his or her love is the one who exceeds everyone and everything else. We gaze upon the object of our love in desire, admiration, and ultimately joy 
because we want to do so, because we see there a fulfillment of all that we long for. Um, And that's what is wonderful about being a witness at a wedding, is you see how the two people look at each other. It doesn't really matter if, if you're brought into that, if you're just witnessing it, you still see it. You still see the, the glory of that. Um, some of us like watching when the bride comes into a wedding and then immediately looking at the groom and seeing how he reacts to seeing her. Right? Maybe those of you who are married can remember that moment in your life. Um, it doesn't matter what's going on to everyone else. It doesn't matter how serious this business is to anyone else. For the two of you, you are the king and queen of the moment. It's of that much importance to you. And that's where the poetry is going. It's teaching us the glories of that and helping us to see this fabulous ceremony as the celebration that it should be of these two people that have been singing about their love for one another finally coming together. This in many ways is the arrival song, the celebration of the appearance of the bride and groom at the wedding. Um, And as it should be, the bride gets most of the attention. We know that from weddings. That's the way it goes. The bride gets most of the attention. The groom is still pictured here, um, but the bride is going to get most of the attention in this passage. But it's meant to celebrate the beauty of, of their arrival, of their coming together for this wonderful moment in their lives. And so the first part of the song we could say is really, here comes the bride. Um, that's what's going on in this passage as she arrives and it's gloriously described. She comes up from the wilderness, we're told, in verse 6. Um, from this place of death and desolation comes such a wonderful picture of life and beauty and glory. Right? There are, sense of, there are clouds of delightful scents arising from her in verse 6. Um, these are pictures of unimaginable wealth and luxury, All the things pictured here are fabulously expensive. Uh, So to have all of these things piled on you is just a picture of of luxury and wealth. It's a beautiful picture. Um, It's also a callback to earlier in the song, uh, in in chapter 1, 12, and 13. These were all the scents that she was hoping would bridge the distance between her and her beloved and draw him to her. And now she's clouded with these things as she's coming to him. And she comes riding on this fabulous litter. Um, Now, litter doesn't strike us as a fabulous word when we use it in our culture. Uh, That's why our Bibles helpfully have a little note. Uh, What is a litter? It's the couch on which servants carry a king. So the bride comes in being carried on a chair. Uh, Maybe some of you feel like you got shortchanged. You were not carried in on a couch to your wedding. Um, You can take that up with your spouse later, um, or maybe just the father of the bride didn't want to pay for it. But anyway, there's this wonderful procession coming in. It's meant to celebrate. This is how a king would arrive, and this is how she arrives in this beautiful picture um, of this luxurious way to be carried in by servants on a couch. It's also a great picture of security here. Uh, She's surrounded by 60 mighty men. Um, that's twice as many mighty men as David had. And these are, these are men who are not for show. Um, I don't know how many of you would like your chances with your groomsmen if you had to fight it out from your wedding. But these are, these are highly trained men of war. These are, you know, Navy SEALs or Marine Raiders. These are, 
the, the most well-trained, the most capable fighting men. It's a picture of great security as well as great luxury. They're ready and able and skilled enough to protect the queen from any terror that might come. Um, it's a beautiful, grand picture. Everything about this is beautiful. Everything about this is ornate. Um, maybe you watched the coronation of King Charles recently, and they ride on this great state carriage, and everyone talks about how glorious it is and how uncomfortable it is to ride in. Um, but it, it's beautiful to look at. It's, it's wonderfully constructed. And this, this litter is wonderfully constructed. Right? King Solomon, we're told, made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He was wise. He was skillful in things. It's the finest kind of wood. It's made from posts of silver. It has a back of gold. It has a seat of purple. Everything about this is wonderful. And then there's this charming comment in the second part of verse 10 that its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Um, It's wonderfully built, inlaid with love and care. And all of this glory, all of this picture is really meant to draw our attention to the bride who comes, who comes on this chair, who comes surrounded by this security, surrounded by this glory, and who comes to be married. And only after we have this great picture of her do we see the picture of her husband. We see that in verse 11. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of his gladness of heart. Uh, He's wearing a crown, the symbol and seal of his royal office. He's dressed for his wedding day. This song about love and this wisdom that's given to us about how to love, this is the first time the wedding day is finally mentioned keying us into to the importance of what's going on here, of these two coming together. And notice that it's the wedding day, the, the, the union between these two coming together and being made one. That's the day of the gladness of his heart. That's where he locates his happiness, is, being, is coming together with the bride that he loves and finally being married and finally being brought together as one new life that that's where this love finds its culmination. And as we've been thinking about this passage and and thinking about how it gives wisdom for love, it's teaching us a very important truth here to meditate on. As, as As the king, the bridegroom here is being pictured to us, where does he find his joy? There's a lot that his attention might be focused on here. The wealth power, right? The glory of it all. The prospect of coming together with the woman he's desired so much throughout this passage and who's desired him. But where does he really find the center of his gladness? At the prospect of being married to her, of having that commitment sealed and being brought together. That for him is the high point of his joy. It's the final commitment of the marriage, not the final consummation of the marriage where he's focused his attention and where he finds his joy. And as this book is teaching us wisdom for love, it's teaching us that that's where we find the highest joy. 
Not what flows from the commitment, but the commitment itself. What the union by our God is making. The two who are united into one flesh. That's the one and great final goal of love. And all the other blessings and all the other benefits that come with it flow out of that. And that has to be the way for us as we think about love and we think about love as the Bible defines it, right? Physical intimacy should not be the great and final goal of our human relationships, which is, again, why we so desperately need the wisdom of this book, because that runs so counter to most of what our culture says and thinks about these things. Um, Love and marriage is the great and final goal, which leads to blessings like physical intimacy, but there's a clear order in God's creative purposes, when it comes to our natural loves, right? The bringing and joining together of two hearts and two lives before there's the joining together of two bodies. That's a consequence of the one, but it's not the end-all, be-all of our lives. And that's why I think even when we contemplate the union between Christ and His church, and we think about the high point of what it means to be a people with our God, where is the high point located for us in God's Word? When Revelation wants to celebrate what it will mean for the church to be with our God, what is the image that the Holy Spirit motivates the biblical authors to use to describe that great day? It's a wedding day, isn't it? That's the picture that we're given. That's the nature of the celebration. When the high point that's pictured in Revelation, like we heard about in Sunday school this morning, when Revelation is picturing to us the great consummation, the great coming together of Christ and His church at the end, when the church triumphant is with her God, what is the picture? It's the wedding. Right? Revelation 21, 1 and 2, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. It's wedding imagery. It's the wedding day that pictures. And what follows in verse 21, 9, Come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And interestingly there too, there are pictures of security and wealth and luxury and glory as King Solomon adorned his wife with the blessings of his power and riches in this passage, so King Jesus adorns his bride, the church. Revelation 19, 7 through 9 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. That's the high point for Christ and his bride, the wedding day. 
heaven and its celebration is pictured to us as the marriage supper, celebrating that great union between Christ and his church. The two being brought together in a way that will never be torn asunder again. To be with our God and to be with him forever. That's where this fabulous ceremony is directing our attention. Um, And then the passage moves almost as if from the grand picture of the wedding as a whole to focusing in on the altar and what the groom thinks of his bride. And so it moves from sort of the great fabulous ceremony that's going on to this wonderful song that that the husband really sings about his bride. One commentator called this the flawless bride, and I thought I couldn't do any better uh, with describing this section, the flawless bride. This is really a song we see in chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, of this, this love becoming even more intimately expressed from the fabulous ceremony down to what the husband thinks of his wife. It, we can think of this as if they're now standing at the altar and the husband is going to tell his bride what he thinks of her. There's nothing manipulative or coercive here in anything he says. This is a summation of all the kinds of uh, emotional needs she's been speaking about and his trying to meet all of those needs by removing any remaining doubt she has about herself and about how he loves her. There have been doubts expressed as we've gone on through this book, haven't there? Uh, she's, she's wrestled with certain things, and he's speaking to her now a song of admiration that's meant here at their wedding day to put aside any doubts about how he feels about her. It's a wonderful song of admiration that we have here. It follows a very kind of form from the ancient Near East of songs of praise of one's beloved. There are seven compliments that he gives her. Now, I know I told you this morning not to pay attention to numbers, but numbers sometimes are important. Seven is the number of completion, the number of perfection. And so this song of admiration that he's going to sing to her has seven parts to it, um, praising her for who she is. He begins with her eyes. Um, he praises her eyes. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Now, he said her eyes are doves before, um, but this is a closer picture. Now he's not from afar like he was when he said it in chapter 1. Now he's not behind a wall like he was earlier. Now he's just between, there's only a veil between the two of them. Right? He's looking close into her eyes and talking about the beauty of them to him. That's a closer picture. It's a more intimate picture. Then he moves on to her hair. If you're thinking about what to write in your next Valentine's Day card, here you have it. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down the slopes of Gilead. I'll be still my beating heart, right? Um, This is one of those moments that's sort of like, how is that a compliment? And in what sense is that a compliment? Um, You run a risk, I think, using this today, right? Um, You're on very thin ice. Um, But he means this to be a wonderful expression of of glory. Goats had black hair, so he's talking about the color of her hair in how he says this. And running down the slopes of Gilead, it's it's a verb that's also sometimes used for the motion of of water that's boiling. Um, So what is that a picture of? It's, It's your hair is 
beautiful, it's black, and it's, it's shimmering. It's like it's alive with its color. So even though it sounds a very strange thing for us, it's a very beautiful thing to say. He's complimenting the, the brightness and the liveliness and the color of her hair in the way he puts this. So he praises her eyes, and then he praises her hair, and he praises her teeth. Um, this, too, it maybe strikes us as a strange way to say to someone, you have really nice teeth, what we read in verse 2. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. They're shorn and washed. They're white and clean. There are none missing, and they're all perfectly matched. There are no miscarriages. Um, and we might laugh at that description, but I would like to know how many of us could write a poetic line describing how good someone's teeth looked and make it so nice. Um, we're separated by distance from these things, but we can appreciate the, the tone and the tenor of it, can't we? That your eyes are beautiful, your hair is beautiful, your teeth are beautiful, your lips and mouth are beautiful. Your lips are like a scarlet thread. They're beautiful in appearance. Uh, and he praises her mouth as well. Your mouth is lovely. Particularly, th this has not the idea that it's aesthetically pleasing to me, your mouth. But what you say is lovely. This is a word that focuses on the mouth as an instrument of speech. And so your, your speech to me is lovely. Um, this is not just her looks. This is also what she says. He's saying you're not just beautiful in appearance to me, but you're lovely in the words you produce, in the things you say. This is more than just a skin-deep meditation on what she looks like. Her lips and mouth are beautiful. Her cheeks are beautiful. Um, we maybe can understand the pomegranates a little bit better. Um, bright and rosy. Um, pomegranates are full of seeds. There's the signs of fertility and life-giving potential there. He praises her neck in verse 4. Again, it's hard to know exactly what the, the picture here of towers of strength covered with shields is exactly meant to portray, but I think it's sort of the bearing of her neck and the way her neck is beautifully adorned. Um, it's decorated. It's beautiful. It stands tall. And then he praises her breasts. And we could maybe wish that he hadn't and that we didn't have to talk about it. Um, but one of the things, you could wish that, maybe I'm wishing that too. But um, I'm reminded of, we used to, my grandmother used to live with us and um, if any, she had very, very careful sensibilities. So if there's ever anyone kissing on TV, you could always count on her and go, oh my. Um, so we still sometimes do that to this day. If there's someone passion brace, someone in the family will say, oh my. So there are some oh my moments in the Song of Solomon. And so why, why does he praise her in this way? Um, is this some kind of just gross objectification of her? Well, no, it's where she had drawn his attention earlier. She had said, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh between my breasts. He's drawing his attention where she's already drawn it. This is another example of how he's carefully listening to her. And it's a reminder that in marriage, there's nothing shameful about desiring the, the one you love. There's nothing to apologize for in that. 
This is not any kind of gross objectification. This is rather the honest expression of his admiration for all parts of her. Um, His love and respect for her as a whole person and assuring her that he loves every bit of her. And we see that as the song of admiration draws to a close with a repetition of something we've heard before. Um, Part of chapter 4, verse 6 is the same as what we read in chapter 2, verse 17. That expression that ended with the husband being turned away and the wife sort of telling him it's not the time. And he repeats that back to her now. Until the day breathes and the shadows flee, I will go away to the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense. He's reminding her of that time where it wasn't yet time for love. But the time has come. The marriage has come. They are coming together. And what is the final thing that he says, maybe the most beautiful in the summaries of her altogether? What does he say? You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Um, She's expressed all kinds of doubts. Um, Distance, what distance will do, what her looks are, all these kinds of things. And what is the, the final thing he wants to leave her with? Is to say, you are to me flawless. There's, you are altogether beautiful to me. This is his complete answer to any of the doubts she had about herself and about her appeal to him. This is his simple way of ending by saying, you are everything to me. You are flawless. That's worthy of a card. That's worthy of being remembered. You are flawless. One person said, riches, power, and strength are found in the beauty of the one he adores. This one he adores is not the generic beauty who fulfills the requirements of lust, but rather an individual, a person who is like no other, special and significant, unique among women, and he will know her and no other in every way possible. Thus, the song of admiration here is a prelude to sexual intimacy, not primarily because it arouses the passions, but because its honesty of expression and detail of observation place the desire within a loving respect for the woman. He loves her for who she is, not for what he can get from her. And we can understand why a husband would love a wife such as this. And as we think about natural marriage and we think about natural love, where this leaves us then is to let our minds be drawn then to the way Christ loves his church. And what we see in his love for his church is something even more glorious than we see in this husband's love for his wife. Because Christ loves his church for who she is, not for what he can get from her. In that way, he's like this husband. But we would never say, you love us because of who we are. You love us because we are flawless. We know that's not true. Uh, We know if that we were only going to be loved for the intrinsic value that we have, we would not be loved 
because we were loved by our Lord when we were sinners. We were loved by our Lord when we were His enemies. We were loved by our Lord when we were dead in trespasses. He doesn't love us because we're flawless. He loves us because of who He is. And it's His love that makes us what we are. It's His love that makes us flawless. Right? Just as King Solomon here lavishes riches and power and strength on his beloved, so King Jesus does for his church. Um, Revelation says he has granted her to wear the robes of white. We have to be granted that privilege. We're not worthy of that in ourselves. We have to be made like that. We could say as as a church, as Christ's bride, we don't deserve to wear white. But we are clothed by Him in His righteousness. We are granted to wear robes of righteousness, granted the righteous deeds of the saints. Only He can make us pure. Only He can make our deeds righteous. That's the beauty of how the Lord loves His church. He adorns His church by His Spirit to make us worthy of Him, to make us what we are in Him, which is flawless. And that's why we can find hope in Christ as flawed people. In our relationships with God, there's hope for the flawed in God's grace and in His forgiveness to sinners. There's hope for God also in the ways we fail to love one another as we ought. Um, That He can make the foulest clean. That He can make the ugly beautiful. That He can make the poor rich. And that He can make the weak strong. It's our God who has the power to make all things new. That's for the hope for the flawed for people who can get things so wrong in this life, is that we have a Savior who has loved us because of who He is and has worked by His Spirit to make us worthy. What a wonderful picture we have in the Lord who's loved His church. May we give Him the glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this picture of a wedding. We hope that those who are married here can see a picture of their own wedding pictured here. And even for those of us who aren't, Lord, we can see the the glories of the wedding and the beauties of what's pictured here. And it fills us with love for our Savior to know that he looked upon his bride, the church, despite the fact that we had so many flaws, that we were fatally flawed, and yet he loved us and left your house in order that we might be saved, that he might unite himself to us and bring us into his flawless life. We thank you for that love. We thank you for the beautiful picture we have of it here. And we pray we might learn the wisdom of how to love from this song and give you the glory for it. Hear us, for we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.